0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode is brought to you by Your Super. Before we get started, I want to say thank you to Aaron Grable and Kathleen Ryan for supporting Murderish through Patreon. Thank you both for your support. Recently, I organized a murderish meetup in North Hollywood, and it was so much fun. I want to thank everybody for coming and sharing the evening with me. I'm really looking forward to doing that again soon. Lastly, I want to let you know that today's episode marks the first case I'll be covering in a series of three episodes on the topic of sports-related murders. This is the first time I've produced a series of episodes all based around a similar topic. The case I'm covering today involves discussions regarding domestic violence, sexual assault, and use of steroids. Please use discretion before listening. Now, let's get into today's case. According to police reports, officers responded to the McNeil's apartment on a domestic violence call on more than one occasion. According to police, Ray came home late that evening. Sally questioned him about his whereabouts, and they began to fight. Ray allegedly struck her and grabbed her by the throat. That's when police say Sally took a loaded shotgun from her bedroom and fired two fatal shots. This case takes us to the beach town of Oceanside, California. Oceanside, located about 80 miles south of Los Angeles and part of San Diego County, is known for its surf culture and being a military town. World War II helped shape Oceanside with the construction of Camp Pendleton, the nation's largest Marine Corps camp. With this new military development came a boom in population in the beach town. The crime rate in Oceanside is average, but the climate is what draws many people to the beach town. During the 1920s, the city became a popular filming location drawing many celebrities to Oceanside. A popular slogan was established for the city during this time, and people began referring to the city as Oceanside, California's pride. On Valentine's Day of 1995, law enforcement would respond to a reported shooting and find a man on his hands and knees covered in blood. The man sustained horrific injuries to his stomach and his face. Shockingly, he was still alive, but the man would eventually succumb to his injuries. Did this man die because someone was afraid for their life, or was it murder? Join me as I walk you through the case involving bodybuilder Sally McNeil, also known as Killer Sally. On February 14th of 1995, law enforcement responded to a reported shooting at 1802 South Tremont Street, Unit Number Five, in Oceanside, California. Upon their arrival at the scene, Officer Gary Schultz observed a man on his hands and knees, bleeding heavily. The man had sustained significant injuries to his stomach and face, leaving him disfigured. The man, identified as 29-year-old Ray McNeil was near the front door of the house when officers arrived. He was inside the living room of a modest apartment he shared with his wife and her two children from a previous relationship. His wife, Sally McNeil, was the person who made the 911 call. Officer Schultz quickly learned that Sally had been the person who shot Ray during a reported domestic dispute. Ray's injuries were horrendous. Sally shot him with a shotgun, and the gunshot to his stomach made his liver stick out of his body. The shot penetrated three of Ray's ribs and made a five-inch by six-inch hole in his diaphragm. The gunshot to Ray's face decimated half of his jaw and significantly tore into his tongue. It was astonishing that he was still alive when Officer Schultz arrived on scene. Ray was airlifted to Scripps Memorial Hospital in nearby La Jolla in San Diego County. Sadly, Ray died in the early morning hours the following day. Ray McNeil was laid to rest in Dunn, North Carolina. At his service, Sally's 11-year-old daughter, Shantina Marie Loden, read aloud a heartfelt letter she wrote to her stepfather. It's been reported that Shantina loved Ray very much, as if he were her own father. In her letter, Shantina wrote, Daddy, 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 please don't go. I love you and always will. I wish I could have saved you, but I couldn't. Shantina and her younger brother, John Anthony Loden Jr., were inside of the apartment the night their mother shot Ray. During their marriage, Ray and Sally McNeil could often be found at Gold's gym working out. Both of them were bodybuilders and gym rats. Their gym friends were absolutely shocked upon learning about Ray's death, and especially that Sally was the person who shot him. Gold's gym manager, Adrian Lamb, said, Every time Sally and Ray were in the gym here, they always look like the perfect couple. Sally is a very nice person. It just blows us away because it was so unexpected. But to Ray and Sally's friends and family outside of the gym, Ray's death came as no surprise. Family members and neighbors were all too aware of the couple's history of physical altercations, and police records only confirmed this. There was a well-documented history of violent altercations between Ray and Sally. Ray F. Farrell McNeil was born December 17th of 1964. Some reports indicate that Ray was a native Jamaican, however, other reports list that he was born in North Carolina. At some point during his adulthood, Ray joined the United States Marine Corps, and this is where he would meet his future wife, Sally. Both Ray and Sally were sergeants in the Marine Corps and stationed at Camp Pendleton in Oceanside. At the time they met, they were both heavily into bodybuilding. Ray, with his large, muscular frame and dark black hair, often wore a flat-top hairstyle with sideburns. He had a recognizable gap between his two front teeth that added to a winning smile while he was on stage, performing in bodybuilding competitions. Ray and Sally got married in Nevada in 1987. Three years later, in 1990, Ray left the Marines to pursue a full-time career in bodybuilding. By that time, Sally had also left the Marine Corps and made ends meet by selling videos of her wrestling men inside of the couple's apartment. Sally called herself Killer Sally. We'll get into Sally's amateur wrestling a little bit later. In 1991, Ray won the California Bodybuilding Championship and was named Mr. California. A couple of years later, he participated in the Mr. Olympia competition where he placed 15th out of 22 contenders. Ray branched out and began dabbling in stand up comedy and acting. In 1994, he was featured in a commercial and also began performing stand-up at the Comedy Club in La Jolla. In the months leading up to his death, Ray had been training for the South Beach Pro Invitational in Miami, Florida, which he was scheduled to compete in the month after he died. Sally Marie McNeil, whose birth name was Sally Marie Dempsey, was born on September 30th of 1960 in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Her parents, Richard Dempsey and Pauline Kaufman, Divorced when Sally was just three years old, they had four children together. Sally came from a military family, with her brother Michael serving in the Marines and her uncle serving in the Army. Sally's family had a history of tragic deaths and accidents. In 1947, Patricia Dempsey, who would have been Sally's aunt, died in a drowning accident at the age of five. She drowned in a 10-foot-deep water tank near the family's home in Pennsylvania. In 1963, a couch in the family's basement caught fire. Sally and her siblings were being looked after by a sitter at the time this happened. Eight days later, the kids were again being watched by a sitter. The sitter apparently walked across the street, leaving the young children alone in the house. Somehow, while the sitter was away, some rags caught fire in the basement. This was the second fire at Sally's family home in a span of just eight days. The fire department was called and they questioned all of the children, but none of them copped to causing the fire. In 1993, a 77-year-old man died in a car accident after being in a head-on collision with Sally's mother, Pauline. Then, in 2010, tragedy struck again when Sally's brother, Michael Dempsey, died in a freak accident. Michael was heavily intoxicated and fell asleep inside of a big recycling container. When the container, filled with cardboard, was dumped into the compactor of a recycling truck, Michael's body was dumped along with it, crushing him to death. It's believed that he was unconscious at the time this happened. Michael was a known alcoholic and often fell asleep outdoors after drinking heavily. Sally, with her blonde hair and stocky build, attended Dyeriff High School in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where she was a talented athlete. Sally excelled at swimming, diving, and running track. In 1978, she took top prize at the Allentown City Diving Championship. After high school, Sally went on to attend East Stroudsburg State College, where she continued as a talented athlete, winning top honors in diving and swimming multiple times between 1978 and 1981. Sally became a Marine after attending college for three years and met her first husband, John Anthony Loden, during this time. Loden, who was also a Marine, married Sally in 1982 in Quantico, Virginia. In the early to mid-1980s, during her marriage to John Loden, Sally began participating in amateur bodybuilding contests. In the late 1980s, She won the U.S. Armed Services Physique Championship two times. John and Sally had three children together, but only raised two of them, deciding to give one of their children up for adoption. John and Sally went on to raise Shantina Marie and John Anthony Loden Jr. together, until they divorced in 1986, after four years of marriage. Sally would later claim their divorce was caused by John's physical abuse. John claimed that Sally became unhinged after she became involved in bodybuilding. Sally would marry Ray McNeil in 1987, a year after she and John divorced. When Sally left the Marine Corps in 1990, she needed a way to earn more income to support her family. Ray had thrust himself into bodybuilding full-time, but wasn't earning any income. When Sally left the Marine Corps, she became what's known as a schmo wrestler, Also known as apartment wrestling, schmo wrestling is also known as a type of semi-erotic entertainment for men. Sally would videotape herself wrestling men into submission inside of her and Ray's apartment, and then she'd sell those videos to earn money for their family. A schmo refers to a man who pays to wrestle with a woman who is stronger than him, usually for sexual gratification, although no sexual activity takes place. The money Sally earned as a schmo wrestler allowed her new husband, Ray, to pursue a career in bodybuilding full-time. While Sally worked hard to provide for Ray and her children, her husband began having affairs, some of which were homosexual, according to Sally. In addition to wrestling for money, Sally continued bodybuilding on an amateur level. During one particular competition in 1990, Sally became violent with another woman who was a spectator at the show. Sally attacked the woman during the show because, apparently, she was having an affair with Ray. The National Physique Committee suspended Sally for a year after that incident. That same year, Sally received probation after she pulled a gun on her ex-husband, John. During that incident, Sally also broke the windows of John's vehicle using a crowbar. Just days after the violent incident with her ex-husband, Sally became enraged at Ray and let go of a 70-pound weight from an upper balcony of their apartment. The weight dropped on top of Ray's car when he was driving away. That was not the last brush with the law for Sally during that year. One particular day, for unknown reasons, someone contacted law enforcement to investigate the welfare of Sally's children. When officers arrived, Sally was combative and police sprayed her in the face with mace in order to subdue her. The following year, in 1991, police came to Ray and Sally's home after receiving a report of domestic violence. No arrest was made at that time. Two years later, in 1993, Sally was dancing on a table at a bar in Allentown, Pennsylvania. When the bouncer tried to get her down from the table, Sally attacked him. When officers arrived, Sally allegedly threatened to kill them. Sally was so strong and belligerent. It took three officers to successfully get her under control. Sally was obviously no stranger to violence. Perhaps it was just in her nature to turn to violence in certain situations. But Sally's violent tendencies were very likely perpetuated by her use of anabolic steroids. In the world of bodybuilding, steroid use is not uncommon. Sally's use of anabolic steroids fell right in line with many of her peers some of the most common side effects of anabolic steroid use is aggression, irritability, and violence, often referred to as roid rage. On February 15th of 1995, the day Ray died in the hospital, Sally was arrested in connection with her husband's death and transported to the Vista Detention Facility in San Diego County. The day following her arrest, Sally was formally charged with murder. After Sally shot Ray, she called 911. When officers arrived, Sally quickly told them that she shot her husband, answering many of the questions investigators usually have to work to uncover when someone is shot. While they had answers to many of their questions, investigators still needed to find out what drove Sally to kill her husband. I am so picky about the ingredients I put into my body. And that's why Your Super is such a perfect fit for me. Your Super creates clean superfood mixes that boost energy and immunity, as well as improve your skin and help you maintain a healthy weight. And they make their high quality mixes so easy to consume. My go-to lately has been Your Super's Super Greens Mix. Like many people, I struggle to get a sufficient amount of healthy greens each day. Now. I just pour a pack of Your Super's Super Greens Mix into my water bottle before I leave the house. And just like that, I've got a full serving of healthy green veggies that I can drink on my way to work. And it tastes so good. All of Your Super's mixes are thoughtfully made with just five to six whole food ingredients with no added colors or sweeteners. If you live a hectic lifestyle like me, Your Super can help you stay on track with a healthy diet with nothing to prepare or cook. You simply pour one of Your Super's mixes into your water, your almond milk, oatmeal, or hummus, and enjoy. People often ask me what I do to make my skin glow. Besides the help I get from my favorite highlight powder, one of my secret weapons is Your Super's Forever Beautiful Mix. It's made of six powerful skin foods that make my skin glow. Not only does Your Super have a direct relationship with farmers, all of their products are organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, 100% plant-based, and dairy-free. Your Super was created by two athletes who saw incredible improvements in their own health after consuming superfood mixes on a regular basis. After that, they were on a mission to share their discovery with the world to help others improve their health. And that's what fueled them to create Your Super. If you're ready to get the cleanest superfood plant protein mixes, just visit YourSuper.com that's Y-O-U-R-S-U-P-E-R dot com. Get 15% off when you enter code MURDERISH at checkout. Are you tired of battling through the dreaded pre-period week or struggling with menopause symptoms? It's time to reclaim control with estro control. When I'm not feeling like myself, I'm not able to show up as my best self for my family, my friends, or my podcast team. He and Sally had been married for eight years. Their volatile relationship was well-documented in police reports, court records, and statements from people who were friends with the couple. The violence in Ray and Sally's relationship went both ways, with each of them leveling attacks on one another. During one of their fights in 1990, it was alleged that Ray beat and injured Sally, and she was granted a temporary restraining order against Ray. After that incident, Sally alleges that Ray continued to abuse her. During one incident, Sally claims that Ray punched her in the mouth and hit her in the head. Sally's claims seem to be supported by others, as witnesses reported seeing Sally with injuries to her body on numerous occasions. Connie Venter, who worked at the apartments where Ray and Sally lived, said that Sally often called her to report damage that Ray had done to their apartment during his rages. In addition to the physical abuse, Sally claimed that Ray also sexually assaulted her during their marriage. To say their relationship was dysfunctional would be an understatement. Ray's purported affairs and the couple's use of anabolic steroids likely made matters worse. There were attempts to leave the relationship as Ray and Sally took turns breaking up with one another. The couple, however, would always end up back together. Sally claimed that her self-esteem was extremely low and that she thought she was lucky to have a man like Ray. She didn't believe she was capable of attracting any other men. Although Ray and Sally's relationship was volatile, to many people, they seemed like a loving couple. The two of them supported one another at bodybuilding tournaments and spoke kindly of one another in various interviews. According to Peter McGough's article in Flex magazine, Ray's flights were paid for during the 1993 Post-Olympia Euro Tour because he was a contestant. Sally's flights had to come out of the couple's own pocket, which they couldn't afford. Instead, Sally would take the train, and Ray was right there waiting for her at every train station. McGough likened it to something out of a Hallmark movie. On the evening of February 14th of 1995, Valentine's Day, Ray arrived home to his and Sally's apartment around 10.30 p.m. Ray had been working out that evening and stayed out later than usual. As Ray began cooking a meal for himself in their kitchen, an argument between the couple ensued. Reportedly, Sally was upset about Ray coming home so late and that the chicken he was cooking cost too much money. With her being the sole provider, It's believed that the price Ray paid for the chicken angered Sally. Allegedly, when Ray came home that night, Sally also accused him of having an affair with another woman. At some point, the argument between the two of them became physical, and allegedly, Ray struck Sally and then began strangling her. Sally was able to break away, at which time, she retrieved a shotgun from the couple's bedroom closet. Sally loaded a round into the shotgun, a process that took about one to three minutes. Sally then went back into the kitchen and that's when she shot Ray for the first time, striking him in the stomach. His injuries were horrific. The shotgun ripped through his abdomen, causing a large hole with his liver protruding from his body. Ray fell to his knees and began crawling into the living room. During this time, Sally shot Ray a second time, this time in the face. The second shot blew off most of his jaw and left his tongue mangled. Ray, miraculously, was still alive, even after the second shot. Later, the manner in which Sally loaded the shotgun would come under question. One side would claim that she loaded two rounds into the shotgun upon retrieving it from the closet. Then she shot Ray twice within a matter of seconds. The other side would claim that Sally only loaded one round into the shotgun when she first retrieved it. Then, she went back into the closet and loaded another round into the shotgun as Ray crawled on his hands and knees with a massive wound to his stomach. After loading a second round, that's when Sally came back into the living room and shot Ray a second time. Sally's two children, ages 11 and 9, were in the apartment during the shooting. While they didn't witness it, they could hear everything as it unfolded. Shantina ran out of her bedroom and into the living room and saw her stepfather on the floor suffering from massive injuries. Sally told her daughter to run to the neighbor's house, and then Sally called 911 to report the incident. investigators had numerous theories to work off of as to what may have motivated Sally to kill her husband. She could have flown into a rage over Ray's numerous affairs. Perhaps she was afraid for her life after being attacked by Ray that night. It's possible she may have been resentful over supporting Ray financially for so many years. Maybe she was experiencing roid rage. And perhaps her motive was much more sinister. Maybe Sally killed her husband in order to collect on a life insurance policy. Two days after she was arrested, Sally pleaded not guilty to the murder charge. Judge Michael Burley set Sally's bail at $100,000, although the prosecution asked for it to be set at $1 million. The judge believed that since Sally was indigent or without financial means, she would not be able to produce the funds necessary for the $100,000 bail. Regardless of the judge's rationale, Sally was able to make bail and released from jail on June 19th. Sally stayed with friends as she awaited trial. Exactly 1 year to the day after Ray was shot on February 14th of 1996, Sally's murder trial began. A jury of seven women and five men were chosen to hear the case, with Judge Laura Palmer-Hames presiding. The prosecution presented their theory to the jury during opening arguments. Referring to the trial's opening day, Deputy District Attorney Dan Goldstein told the jury, there is absolutely nothing ironic about this occurring on Valentine's Day either. Goldstein went on to portray Sally as a possessive and jealous person who killed Ray In order to prevent her younger husband from leaving her for another woman, Goldstein highlighted Sally's steroid use as a factor in Ray's murder and the fact that Ray was planning to leave her for his girlfriend. Goldstein said, This case, on its bare facts, is about rejection. It's about, If I can't have you, nobody else will. Goldstein presented evidence of Sally's violent past, saying she showed a pattern of jealousy and violence. The prosecution argued that Sally was a jealous wife whose anger came to a head the night she murdered her husband in cold blood. The prosecution also presented another theory for the jury to consider. Goldstein argued that Sally was also motivated to kill her husband for financial gain. Goldstein told the jury that Sally wanted to collect on Ray's $100,000 life insurance policy. They presented evidence that Sally had visited with an agent from Metropolitan Life Insurance Company just five days prior to shooting her husband. Allegedly, during the meeting, Sally asked the agent about increasing the amount of the policy in which she was the sole beneficiary. Two days prior to the shooting, Sally reportedly inquired with a family friend as to whether Ray's life insurance policy was still good. The prosecution said this pointed to Sally's desire to cash in on the policy. In addition to all of this, Goldstein told the jury that just one day after she shot her husband, Sally phoned a friend while she was incarcerated and asked her to retrieve the life insurance paperwork and make a payment on it before it expired. Sally called that same friend three more times to ask about the life insurance policy. The prosecution presented several witnesses who testified about Sally's repeated attacks on Ray. The jury also heard testimony about Sally's brushes with the law, including her arrest for aggravated assault and resisting arrest. Testimony also included discussions about Sally's attack on the woman with whom Ray was having an affair. Prosecution was painting a very clear picture of the defendant being someone who had a history of violent behavior. Goldstein presented the jury with physical evidence to support their claims that Sally was a regular steroid user. The jury heard testimony about steroids found inside of Ray and Sally's apartment, and toxicology reports indicated that Sally had steroids in her system the night she shot her husband. To that end, steroids were also found to be in Ray's system the evening he was shot. To be exact, one type of steroid was found in Sally's system while five different types of steroids were found in Ray's system. The prosecution also sought to show the jury that Sally had time to contemplate her actions the night she shot her husband. Goldstein told the jury that Sally had plenty of time to think about her actions as she left Ray in the kitchen for about one to three minutes to retrieve the shotgun from the bedroom, which was about 20 feet away from the kitchen. Goldstein pointed out that Sally had to take the shotgun out of the case and load it with a round before returning to shoot her husband. Goldstein said that when Sally returned to the kitchen, she stood in the entrance, which was the only way out. As she blocked Ray from escaping, Sally yelled at him, telling him never to hit her again. Then, she leveled the shotgun and fired a round at him, standing about six to nine feet away, according to Goldstein. After being shot, Goldstein said that Ray was able to stumble into the living room, at which time, Sally left to retrieve another round of ammunition from the couple's bedroom. Goldstein told the jury that Sally loaded another round into the shotgun and shot Ray a second time, even though he was severely wounded and posed no threat to her. The jury was also shown video footage of Sally's interrogation with the Oceanside PD. When detectives informed her that Ray died from his injuries, Sally broke down and started to cry. Sally told detectives, I didn't want it to be that way. I just wanted to stop him hitting me, oh God. Sally, who remained fairly stoic during trial, began to sob as that video footage was shown to the jury. The judge had to call a recess in order to give Sally time to regroup. Due to Sally's lack of financial means, she was provided a public defender to assist her during trial. William Raphael, Sally's public defender, said in his opening statement, the issue in this case is Sally McNeil's right to use force in an honest manner against her abuser in order to stop the beatings, the rapes, the sodomies, and the torture. Raphael countered the prosecution's claim that Ray was leaving Sally for another woman. He said, Ray McNeil had no intention on leaving his meal ticket. He went on to say, Sally McNeil supported her husband's lifestyle of working out at Gold's Gym during the day and going out with his friends at night. Sally was his sole support, so he could not eat, train, and shoot up steroids. Raphael painted Ray McNeil as a man who was obsessed with himself and saw himself as a god in bodybuilding. He said everything had to be done Ray's way and that he'd abuse Sally when things didn't go the way he wanted. The defense presented a witness who testified about two incidents where Ray knocked Sally to the ground and kicked her outside of the gym at Camp Pendleton. Other witnesses testified about Ray striking Sally and leaving her with bruises and black eyes. The apartment manager where Sally and Ray live told the jury that there were windows and doors that were broken as well as a door lock after Ray reportedly kicked it down. Detective Sergeant Rick Singh testified regarding a statement made by Ray and Sally's neighbor the night of the shooting. The neighbor, according to Singh, said that Sally told him she shot her husband, but she was only trying to scare him because he was beating her. In addition to the beatings, Raphael told the jury that when Sally would reject Ray's sexual advances, he'd rape her. Raphael said he sodomized her and would remark women have holes to put things in, and that's what he thought of her. Raphael pointed to battered women's syndrome as the reason for Sally shooting Ray. In a rare move, Raphael put Sally on the stand to testify in her own defense. In her own words, Sally told the jury that Ray came home late the evening of Valentine's Day in 1995. She said he arrived home around 10.30 p.m. Sally said she questioned Ray about the groceries he bought because they came from an expensive store that she could not afford. Sally said she also asked him if he had been with his girlfriend that night, and that's when, according to Sally, Ray slapped her, pushed her down, and began strangling her. She said she tried to get away, but he blocked her. She said Ray grabbed her neck again, but she was able to get away. Sally said she ran into the bedroom, grabbed the shotgun, and loaded it. She quickly went back to the kitchen where Ray was cooking chicken. Sally told the jury I wanted to stop Ray from choking me or possibly killing me. I saw him move toward me, and I think the shotgun went off. She said the last thing she recalled was Ray coming toward her, and then she shot him for the first time. Sally had previously told detectives that she shot Ray a second time and then ran out of the apartment. During interrogations, Sally was questioned regarding a shotgun round being found in their bedroom in the apartment. Sally told them that someone must have kicked it, and that might be how it got into their bedroom. Sally also testified about what triggered Ray to begin abusing her. Sally told the court that another Marine told Ray that she had been having affairs with multiple men. This sent Ray into a fury, and that's when the physical abuse began. Sally spoke about several occasions when Ray broke bones in her nose, her toe, hand, and tailbone. Sally also told the jury that on one occasion, Ray threw her down with such great force, one of her ribs broke, which caused a punctured lung. Ray's abuse wasn't limited to being physical, according to Sally. She told the court that Ray would call her stupid and tell her she was white trash and used goods. At some point in the marriage, according to Sally, Ray's beatings would happen less often. Instead, she said, he began sexually assaulting her when he got angry. Sally told the court about Ray's repeated infidelity and that she alone was supporting the family financially, which included Ray's pricey steroid habit. Their marriage was dissolving at the time of the shooting, according to Sally's testimony. The defense called to the stand psychologist Dr. Nancy Caser Boyd, who testified regarding Sally suffering from battered women syndrome, or BWS. Dr. Caser Boyd spoke to the jury about the abuse Sally endured over the years, and that tests indicated that she suffered from BWS as a result. Dr. Kaser Boyd also said that Sally was very committed to Ray and that she had extremely low self-esteem. The doctor also pointed out that Sally often pointed the blame at herself when she and Ray had an altercation. On the evening of the shooting, Dr. Kaser Boyd said that Sally believed she was in danger. Due to Sally's state of mind in that moment, there was a switch in Sally's mind that put her into automatic when Ray strangled her during their fight that night. Women suffering from BWS can become hypersensitive when they believe they're in danger, according to Dr. Caser Boyd. The doctor went on to say that she believes Sally retrieved the gun as a scare tactic, and that fell in line with a woman who was suffering from BWS. The doctor elaborated by saying that Sally reacted to a feeling of being in imminent danger and that women suffering from BWS often develop behaviors that are assaultive in nature as a defense mechanism. Dr. Kaser-Boyd explained that Sally's actions were a signal to Ray that he could not keep abusing her. The 911 operator who took Sally's call that night was also called to the stand. During questioning by the defense, The operator said she heard a man's voice in the background while she was speaking with Sally. The operator said the man was moaning and that she heard him ask, Why did you shoot me? She said Sally responded to the man by saying, I told you that I wasn't taking your shit anymore. The defense argued that Sally's response indicated that she believed the beating would have continued that evening and also that she suffered previous abuse at the hands of her husband. The defense also presented evidence that Sally was strangled the night of the shooting. They did this by calling a police officer to the stand to testify regarding marks on Sally's neck that were consistent with someone being strangled. The marks on her neck were one-quarter-inch scratches that appeared to be from fingernails. The evidence appeared to be compelling in support of the defense's argument that Sally was strangled by Ray that evening. The prosecution, however would go to drastic measures to disprove the defense's strangling theory. The prosecution called to the stand Dr. Norman Sperber, a forensic dentist. Dr. Sperber told the jury that he had Ray's body exhumed weeks after he was buried in order to examine his fingernails. Dr. Sperber testified that upon examination of Ray's hands, he observed that Ray's fingernails were not long. They were cut short. So short, in fact, that Dr. Sperber believed that the scratches on Sally's neck likely were not caused by Ray. The doctor further stated that he could not exclude Sally's own fingernails as the cause of the scratches on her neck. The judge asked members of the public to leave the courtroom before the next witness testified. The defense then called Sally's 11-year-old daughter, Shantina, to the stand. Her testimony was highly emotional. The young girl began to cry as soon as she started to speak. On the stand, Shantina confirmed that Ray strangled and hit her mother the night of the shooting. She told the court that she and her younger brother, John, were in their bunk beds when Ray came home that night. She said she heard him open the door and heard the sound of bags crinkling as Ray was carrying groceries. She said Ray and her mother began arguing, saying, they were battling each other, like with words. Then Shantina said she heard what sounded like a physical altercation. Shantina said, I crawled from my bed and went to the door and walked out, and was like peeping around. I saw my mom. She was crying. The young girl said her mother saw her and told her to go back to bed although Sally testified that she didn't remember her daughter getting out of bed during the fight. Shantina said at some point, she heard a gag sound, like the sound of somebody, like when you cough, something like that. Shantina said she then heard sounds coming from her mother's closet, which shared a wall with Shantina's bedroom. Shortly after, Shantina said she heard another sound, which may have been the sound of Sally loading the shotgun. Then. Shantina said she heard a loud bang. She said she didn't recall hearing a second loud bang. Upon hearing the loud sound, Shantina told the court that she ran into the living room holding a baseball bat for protection. That's when she saw her stepfather with a massive wound to his face and stomach. During this time, Shantina said her mother was on the phone with the 911 operator, and she told Shantina to leave and go to the neighbor's apartment. If Chantina’s account of what happened is accurate, then it would seem more likely that Sally loaded two rounds into the shotgun when she initially retrieved it, versus loading one round, shooting Ray, and then going back to the bedroom to load a second round as previous testimony indicated. If Shantina jumped down from her bunk bed, grabbed a bat, and ran into the living room after hearing one shot, and saw her stepfather with two gunshot wounds, it seems likely that Ray's gunshot wounds happened one right after the other. A little over two weeks after opening arguments were presented to the jury, the prosecution and the defense rested their cases. The 12-member jury now had to decide Sally's fate. After about two and a half days of deliberations and further review of police interview reports and witness statements, the jury were ready to deliver their verdict. On Tuesday, March 19th of 1996, Sally McNeil was found not guilty of first-degree murder. Sally began to cry in relief. As she cried, however, Sally was found guilty of second-degree murder. Sally's relief was short-lived as she now faced 15 years to life in prison, plus four additional years for use of a firearm. Handcuffs were placed on Sally's wrists, And she was taken into custody to await her sentence, which was scheduled for the following month. On April 19, 1996, during Sally's sentencing hearing, Ray's brother, Greg, wanted the court to know that his brother was not a bad guy. Prosecutor Goldstein said about Sally, her calling herself a victim robs Ray McNeil of the dignity of actually being the victim of this crime, of being shot two times. Before handing down a sentence, Judge Laura Palmer-Hames said, The court finds that Sally McNeil was a battered woman at the time she shot and killed Mr. McNeil. But Sally McNeil was also a violent person. She murdered Raymond McNeil in a brutal manner. Ray McNeil did not deserve to die in this way. Then, Judge Palmer-Hames sentenced Sally to 19 years to life in prison, the maximum sentence allowed. Sally would be eligible for parole after 15 years. Sally was transported to the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla the following month. The facility, located about 40 miles north of Fresno in Central California, is the largest women's correctional facility in the United States. The facility is also home to the state of California's death row for women. After questions came up regarding the legal acceptability of Sally's verdict, her public defender filed an appeal with the California Court of Appeals. The appeal stated, among other things, that jurors did not properly follow the judge's instructions. They were told to leave the voluntary manslaughter verdict blank if they found the defendant guilty of a higher charge. Given that they found her guilty of second-degree murder, a higher charge than manslaughter, the manslaughter verdict should have been left blank. In Sally's case, the jury marked not guilty next to the voluntary manslaughter verdict, essentially finding her not guilty of that charge, according to the appeal. The appeal raised the question as to how the jury got to manslaughter without first finding the defendant not guilty of second-degree murder. The state argued that it was simply an error, and the jury's guilty verdict on second-degree murder should stand. The California Court of Appeals agreed with the prosecution and stated that the error was harmless and did not affect the trial's outcome. And with that, the defense's first appeal was denied. Unshaken, Sally continued to appeal her conviction, only to have her appeals denied by both the district courts and the California Supreme Court. On September 22nd of 2003, seven years after she was convicted of second-degree murder, Sally's luck would change. The Ninth Circuit of the United States Court of Appeals found errors in the jury instructions and a decision was made to reverse the district court's judgment. The Ninth Circuit found that inaccurate instructions were given to the jury when they were instructed to disregard evidence pertaining to battered women's syndrome. In addition, the Ninth Circuit found that the jury was given an inaccurate definition of perfect and imperfect self-defense and that both of these inaccurate instructions had a detrimental effect on the jury's verdict. The Ninth Circuit concluded that these errors deprived Sally of her due process right to a fair trial. The state appealed the Ninth Circuit's decision to reverse Sally's conviction, which meant Sally's case would be heard by the United States Supreme Court. On May 3, 2004, the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the state and reverse the Ninth Circuit's decision to overturn Sally's conviction. The U.S. Supreme Court found that any errors in the jury's instructions did not affect the outcome of Sally's verdict. The following year, almost a decade after Sally's initial conviction, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed her conviction. The Ninth Circuit ultimately agreed that the state did not unreasonably apply federal law when it stood by Sally's conviction. Although one Ninth Circuit Court judge disagreed with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, Sally's conviction would not be overturned. Her almost decade-long battle to appeal her conviction was over. When Sally was convicted of murder in 1996, her two children were still minors. After her arrest, Shantina and John were taken to the Polinsky Children's Center in Kearney Mesa, California. The center is a 24-hour temporary housing facility for children who need shelter due to certain emergencies. Her children remained at the center until permanent housing could be found. Some of Sally's friends offered to care for her children, but they ultimately ended up living with Sally's mother, Pauline Lizer, in Whitehall, Pennsylvania. Shantina attended Whitehall High School, where she was a star athlete. She excelled in track and basketball. After graduating from high school in 2001, Shantina followed in the footsteps of her family and joined the U.S. Army. Today, Shantina serves as a staff sergeant at Fort Drum in New York. Shantina has one child, a son who is 11 years old. John, Sally's son, also attended Whitehall High School. John also shared his mother's sports ability and was a standout in wrestling. Following in his sister's footsteps, John entered the U.S. Army after high school. Today, John serves as a special forces sergeant at Florida's Elgin Air Force Base. John, who is an avid poker player, had a brush with the law in 2015. John and his wife were arrested during a domestic violence incident, but it doesn't appear that any charges were filed after that arrest. Today, Sally McNeil resides at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She came up for parole recently, but was denied in February of 2019. Her next opportunity for parole is in 2022, at which time, Sally will be 61 years old. If you or anyone you know are being abused by your partner, help is available. You can get 24-hour assistance anonymously by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-787-3224 for the hearing impaired. If you or anyone you know are battling steroid addiction or any type of substance abuse, Help is also available at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Their helpline is available 24 hours a day and calls can remain confidential. You can reach the helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. You can also call them at 1-800-487-4889 for the hearing impaired. I'm interested in discussing this case with you Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support it. You can hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast listening app. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Your Super. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. If you'd like to go a step further, you can support the show through Patreon. Go to patreon.com murderish for more details. If you want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish, head over to my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. In order to tell the true crime stories featured on this show, Information is gathered from various sources, including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes, someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather the information I draw from to help tell these stories. I want to say thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found in episode notes, which are accessible from any podcast player. If you have any comments or questions, email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderish, at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched by Murderish researcher Gina Mazzolini, and written by me. Be sure to stay tuned for the second episode in my sports-related murder series, which will drop two weeks from the date of this recording. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.